1: listener supported WNYC studios
2: Oh uh, wait, you're listening Okay. All right. Okay. All
3: right. <coughs> you are listening, listening to Radio Lab. Lab.
2: Radio Lab from WNYC. See?
3: See. Yep. <laughs>
4: Hey, I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Krulwich. This is Radio Lab. Today, we're going to start off with a building—not just any building, but a building that is heavy with secrets. Yeah, and it's a building we uh, first really learned about, or at least got a picture of, from this woman,
5: Katie Engelhart. I'm a reporter at Vice News in London,
4: and Katie, like now all of us at Radio Lab, is
5: obsessed—devastatingly <laughs> obsessed—with
4: this place called Hanslope Park.
5: So Hansel Park is this huge, sprawling complex in Buckinghamshire, near a town called Milton Keynes.
4: Which isn't too far from London, and our producer Jamie York... Check, check, check. ...happened to be in London on vacation, so we asked him, well, why don't you just grab your tape recorder and go down there?
2: Yeah, let's do this.
4: Check it out.
5: So it's a bit of a drive from London.
4: About an hour and a half on the M1, M2.
5: You approach this this sort of beautiful town with adorable little posh cottages and little pubs
2: Not from around here. I'm looking for Henslow Park? Yeah.
5: I mean it's it's your sort of typical old Olde British village. Watch out
1: the guard dogs. Very very secure place.
5: About a 4-minute
4: drive past that ye olde town, you go through some fields, crest over a hill and there it is. This massive, massive building surrounded by razor wire. Let's
5: see what's going on here. So the archives are held in a purpose-built building from the 90s.
4: And these are archives, by the way, from the largest empire ever known.
5: It's like if you were creating a movie set for, like, a secretive government compound where they keep secret files, you would literally just make this.
1: (laughs) Jamie parked a quarter mile away and walked up to the gate.
5: There's
2: a big... Looks like a electrified fence.
1: Through the gate.
4: Taller than me. Past these traffic spikes.
1: Just as he barely stepped inside.
3: Are you in a car? I am. I'll just come back to your car. We're not, I'm not comfortable with any of this activity you're doing.
4: A guard grabs him, takes him to a guardhouse.
3: Right,
6: can I just ask what that is?
2: It's a microphone. Can you
6: just disconnect it while you're in here though, please?
1: And then.
2: Where is your vehicle? That's. Uh, Right, okay. I'll go for a
1: walk with you. They walk him. Are
2: you going to escort me all the way back to my car?
1: The entire quarter mile back to his car. That'd
4: be good for you. Now, we've heard it said that the files in that building, if they were ever released, could rewrite 200 years of history. No idea if that's true.
5: We just don't know.
4: But we're starting to know. And today we're going to focus on the one story that has so far, anyway, tumbled out. Kind of by accident. And it's a story. that we find kind of startling. And we should also warn that there's some stuff coming up that is graphic and disturbing. So if you're listening with kids, you might want to skip this one. Although if you're not listening with kids, don't skip it. Don't skip it. Okay.
7: Our story is of Kenya.
8: Kenya was always uh, seen... This is historian David Anderson. Uh, In a kind of sepia-tinted haze.
7: Many years ago came white men of adventure, pioneers, who found the country beautiful, the climate kind, and the soil fertile.
4: Bougainvillea, sunshine, smiling, happy servants. David says that in the 1910s, 20s, 30s, the British public was obsessed with Kenya. You had books, eventually... Television programs. It was one of the crown jewels of the empire. And so you had all of these Brits leaving Britain and going to Kenya to start a new life. And many, many of the settlers who flocked out to Kenya were lower middle classes who could
8: have a much better salary and a much better living standard in Kenya than they ever could back at home.
7: They stayed and founded the young colony where men make their homes, where their children are born, taught, and grow strong and healthy.
4: Now, it probably goes without saying that this new life for the British citizen came at the expense of the Kenyan who was already living there.
6: Two problems that were always encountered in Africa, and in general with colonization, is the
4: issue of land and the issue of labor. That's Harvard historian Caroline Elkins. She'll play a big role in our story.
6: So in Kenya, they solved the land problem by simply alienating it and giving it to the white farmers. But then becomes the labor problem. How do you force Africans to labor cheaply on plantations, right? Like, in this case, tea and coffee. Well the way you do it is you create what are called native reserves. We had them here for for native americans.
4: She basically says that the native kenyans were forced off of their land into slums where they could barely eke out a living and so the only option they had was to work for the white people. And that's how it went for for decades until the second world war.
7: Axis aggression has started. War clouds gather.
4: 1939.
6: Suddenly, thousands and thousands of men.
4: Young Kenyan men are forced into war. The people
8: of Africa are doing excellent work to help the Allied cause.
4: Many get thrown into the British Army. King's African Rifles,
6: Among the finest troops in the Empire. Where they came in contact with ideas of independence. And they anticipated when they returned. Today
4: is victory in Europe day.
6: That, they're, that they would have access to land, that their conditions would be getting better, but nope. They uh, they find their condition has not only not gotten better; it's gotten worse.
4: And so, after the war, a few of these vets from the largest ethnic group in Kenya, called the Kikuyu, they get together
6: and they decide to take an oath. Now, oathing is traditional amongst. The Kikuyu. So, for example, men 100 years ago or more would take an oath pledging allegiance to their ethnic group as they went to war with somebody else. In this case, they'd take an oath pledging themselves to kick all Europeans out of the colony. Then the oath go something like this, I pledge to kick all Europeans out of the colony, uh, out of Kenya, and if I don't, may this oath kill me. I pledge to take up arms against the Europeans if I don't, may this oath kill me. Now, of course, the last thing that was said always was if I reveal the contents of this oath, may this oath kill me.
4: She says the first thing they did was attack the settlers' livestock.
1: Doing
6: things like hamstringing cattle.
4: Hamstringing cattle.
6: Cut their hamstrings.
4: Oh, and, cut their hamstrings. Cut their so ham- they can't walk. They started destroying property. Their oaths started to involve things like... Goat eyeballs, ram
6: scrotums, intestines, blood. Things that absolutely repulsed the local European settlers
4: and put terror into them. And why did they end up calling themselves the Mau Mau?
6: Well, that's a good question. It's The etymology of that is much... Debated um, with nobody quite agreeing on, on how, it, how it came to pass. But Mau Mau is, many think, is a Swahili derivative of sort of more and more that there, there's, you know. Oh. Um, some say it has to do with Europeans, and I don't believe this one, overhearing what was the Mau Mau oath.
4: Whatever the case, in 1952, the colonial government, which was sort of the British arm in Kenya, they declare a state of emergency.
6: And those pledging allegiance to the Mau Mau.
4: They escalate.
6: They start going
4: after the loyalists. The Kenyans who'd been helping the settlers.
1: Savagely attacking the defenseless.
4: Shooting them or? Oh like yeah,
1: they murder Murdering.
4: One assassination after the next.
1: Men and women with their bodies carved forever.
4: They raid loyalist villages.
1: With clubs, knives, and fire.
4: In the British. And they're terrified.
1: Troops are in the streets of Nairobi.
6: This is the night of the long knives coming to, into reality. And it's only about to get worse.
4: And that happens on the night of January 24th, 1953.
6: Which was the murder of the Ruck family. The Rucks were these very young, lovely couple.
4: Roger Ruck was a farmer. Esme Ruck was a doctor who actually administered to the local population. And they had a little boy named Michael who was six.
6: Just that day, the little boy had fallen off his pony and his one of their trusted servants
4: carried him back up to the house. Later that night, a group of Mau Mau crept out of the forest lured Roger and Ruck out of the house, killed them. And then the whole gang, including that same servant that had helped the boy, they march into the house, go up to the little boy's room, and they hack him to death.
6: And there's a very famous photo of the young boy's bed, absolutely bloodied,
4: which is in every major newspaper. And almost overnight, Mau Mau becomes synonymous with pure evil.
3: In our mind, in children's mind, Mau Mau were... Bigger than life, darkest, dark people that you ever saw. Men, men. Men, men, men.
4: Yeah. And actually, as we were reporting this story, one of our producers, Latif Nasser, told us about how his mom grew up next door to Kenya in what is now called Tanzania. And to her and her friends, the Mau Mau were like, like a monster to children. The Boogeyman.
3: That was sort of a threat all the time. Our para- our mother, especially, would refer to if if you don't drink your milk or if you don't sleep. Mau Mau, Ever Mau ke bola the Mau Mau will come and get you. And
4: how scared were you?
3: You know what? Just the word Mau Mau would make us run, crawl under the bed. I'm old enough to be one of the
1: people who thought that there were a uh, communist they were come and get you shot- in the middle of the yes, night. Yes, yeah. they were like uh, Isis or some some weird sort right. of self-organizing terrorist group.
4: Yes. The most
6: bestial, horrible, awful savage movement that had ever hit the face of the British
4: Empire. Okay, so here's where we get to the part of the story that is in deep flux. After the murder of the Ruck family, the settlers demanded that the colonial government do something, and they did. They pursued the Mau Mau fighters, a supposedly small band of fighters into the forest. Uh there were skirmishes that lasted for years story goes the mau mau movement never quite gained traction and ultimately the british quelled the rebellion they handled it now as for how they handled it for the longest time as people would look back it was this giant blank spot no one quite knew what happened and here's why according to david anderson by the time the British finally decide to leave Kenya, this is 1963. By that time, Kenya is around
8: the 20th different colony that Britain will leave. So it's about halfway down the list. So there's already in place a process.
1: At the Uhuru Stadium, the Articles of Independence were handed by the Duke to the country's Prime Minister.
4: There's a formal exchange of powers. They set off fireworks, and then.
1: At midnight. The Union Jack was
4: lowered for the last time. The Brits roll out. In other words, they run a smooth and colorful and happy exit. And at some point in that well-worn exit process, either right before the exit or right afterwards, there was, as David calls it, the weeding of documents.
5: I mean, the British government conducted very, very sophisticated purge operations in all of its former colonies.
4: It's Katie Englehart again. She says everywhere you look, Uganda, Palestine, Rhodesia, Zanzibar, Nigeria, Jordan, Malaya, Hong Kong.
5: There are stories of papers being kind of tightly packed into boxes and dropped at sea. A lot of papers were burned.
8: There's a joke among Indian historians that on the day that India achieved its independence, when the celebrations were taking place in Delhi... You could hardly see what was going on on the podium because the wafts of
4: smoke blowing across from the bonfires of burning documents. All of which is to say that it was, you know, assumed for 30 years that that blank spot of the Mau Mau emergency would just stay blank and the story of the evil Mau Mau would just continue because there were no documents to say otherwise. But then we get to Caroline Elkins.
1: How did you, like once upon a time, you were a curious young grad student or something mm-hmm. Not yeah there. more or
6: less in fact we we even have to go back further you know i'm dating myself at age 45 but the i have to go back to my undergraduate years <clears throat> talking 1990 i was at princeton and we were you know you do senior theses there and princeton was ahead of its time and i got lots of funding and i went off to london and, and
1: kenya how old are you when with, you're taking this trip oh i'm 20 So, Caroline is working in Nairobi.
6: And I'm doing research. At the time, my senior thesis was looking at the Kikuyu, which is the largest ethnic group in Kenya. The Kikuyu. And... I was looking um, primarily at the shifting roles of women and, and the ways in which they were impacted by colonialism.
1: So Caroline would wake up every morning and would walk to this old colonial building right in Nairobi city center. Called the National Archives.
6: It's loud, it's dusty, it's, um, you know, sometimes you had to jump under the desk for several hours because there was a shootout across the street. I mean, it's, it's all, really? really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that was quite a Saturday, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um,
1: Long story short... So one day, she was at the archives flipping through some files when...
6: I came across some files on a uh, detention camp. Kamiti Detention Camp. Is now, Is it Kamiti? Little- Kamiti, you say? Kamiti. K-A-M, as in Mary, I-T-I.
4: And this was in Nairobi?
6: Uh, just outside Nairobi. Okay. And I said, gosh, you know... I know nothing about this.
1: So she calls over the archivist.
6: guy named Evanson. And I said, Evanson, you got anything else like this? He said, yeah, let me take a look. <laughs> and then Evanson starts bringing me some other files also related to a committee, very bureaucratic files.
1: These pages were filled with, uh, were... with details and numbers of prisoners. A lot of them were women.
6: Well, over a thousand because they would mention a hundred of this and a couple hundred of that. Huh. And at that point, I thought, what's going on? So...
4: Short time later, she gets back to Princeton,
6: and being the good little undergraduate history major that I was, I just, I searched high and low about detention camps in Kenya. Nothing much. Yeah, no
1: mention of this center anywhere.
6: There's nobody who had done a systematic study of it. Okay, and that's what I was after. <laughs>
4: So without anything else to go on, Caroline just started driving up country, as they say, in the middle of nowhere, Kenya. All these tiny little villages in the central province. I
6: mean, really, if you wanted to find middle of nowhere on the map, I was in it. I would just show up at somebody's little shamba or farm one day and. Next thing you know, I'm conducting an interview.
3: Can you ask her while working
6: about how many people?
4: These are tapes she recorded on a few of her trips. She would speak to people through her research assistant, Terry Wairimu. I mean, some of these interviews would go on for hours. Then one interview begets the next. Every time you finish an
6: interview, you say, you know, do you have somebody else who I could talk to? And they say, oh, yeah, I've got my friend who lives three ridges up and four hills over.
4: So she would talk to that person. And then the person they referred to. And then the person they referred to. And this is what she did for like five years. I
6: went and interviewed several
4: hundred villagers. And what exactly are they telling you?
6: Um, stories you you can't imagine
4: What those stories were, and what those stories have begun to unravel, is up next. <laughs>
3: That won't go a go. But I'm going to make that not get you. I didn't go right. What do you want this is Darlene calling from Kampala, Uganda. Radiolab is supported in part by the National Science Foundation and by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org.
0: Radio Lab is supported by Babel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better every day? When you are learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations. Café s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just 3 weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year. Here is a special limited-time deal for Radiolab listeners. Right now get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com/radiolab. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com/radiolab, spelled b a b b e l. .com/radiolab rules and restrictions may apply. NYC Now delivers breaking news, top headlines and
4: in-depth coverage from WNYC and Gothamist every morning, midday and evening. By sponsoring our programming, you'll reach a community of passionate listeners in an uncluttered audio
9: experience. Visit sponsorship.wnyc.org to learn more.
4: Hey, I'm Jad Abumran. And I'm Robert Krolwitz. This is Lab. Before we get to the stories that Caroline was referring to, um, we should say that as we were sort of reporting this story, we we really kind of fell in deep uh, to the point where Jamie York, who had already gone to London to get hassled by those guards at Hanslow Park, he then decided to um, spend part of his vacation in Kenya, basically following in Caroline Elkin's footsteps. Yes. And that's when he stumbled into something kind of surprising. So I got picked up
2: early one morning in Nairobi uh, and driven about three hours uh, into the countryside. And after what felt like five right turns, 37 lefts, we finally wind up in this completely rural place. It really does feel like
4: the middle of nowhere. It's like a a little village or something?
2: Yeah, a little cluster of houses and rolling hills in a county called Nyeri. Got my stuff, got out of the car followed Terry who uh, had arranged the trip. My
3: name is Terry Gichuki. I am 41 years old.
2: This is the same Terry who translated for Caroline Elkins many years ago. Hello. Hello. anyhow, past a few kids. And Terry walks me into this little clay hut. There's a table in the center of the room. There's a handful of plastic chairs around it, and eventually people start showing up.
3: I'm good. Women.
2: Nine women who are all in their late 80s, early
3: 90s. Make introductions. And
10: honestly,
2: I'm a little bit disappointed because the Mau Mau, I thought, were just men, fighters. And seeing these women, I thought, oh no. I realized most of the men have died of old age. Oh, so you thought you were going to meet anybody. Exactly. I'm curious for myself. But I thought, okay, I'll, I'll just ask. How many of the women,
3: like, show of hands?
2: How many of you identified as Mau <laughs> Mau? Instantaneously, everyone put their hand up. All nine people? Mm. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
2: and then started to sort of chuckle.
3: They find it funny that we are asking them. Because it's obvious they were supporting Mau Mau.
4: They were like, oh, of course we were supporting the Mau, Mau.
2: We were the Mau, Mau. Like, that, that was everybody.
4: Oh, interesting. So it wasn't just like a small band of militants.
2: It wasn't a small band of militants. Amongst the Kikuyu, it was almost everyone.
4: This is one of the first things that caught Caroline Elkin's attention, made her really question that official narrative. Because when she was doing interviews 15 years ago, she says everyone she spoke to... Everyone to
6: a person and we're talking hundreds of interviews, started with,
4: I took the oath on such and such a date. Very interesting. It seemed to her what you had here was not a small insurrection. This was a mass movement. And she would discover that the British response to it was also massive. 1953, shortly after the murder of the Ruck family, the white settlers marched, demanded that the colonial government do something. And so what happened is that the colonial soldiers... They came to the village. They started going to villages across Kenya.
6: They rounded everybody up.
4: Slaughtered their cattle, slaughtered their goats. Burned
6: down their homesteads.
4: And put them into these prison villages. Some
6: 800 barbed wire villages throughout central province
3: Kenya. The village was like a a concentration camp. But the,
8: thing, the thing to grasp here is that, that this is very carefully designed and very
4: practical. David says there was a very carefully planned system at work. The barbed wire villages were primarily for women and children. Men were usually sent to these detention camps, which were basically prisons. Now, the logic of those camps was actually thought up by a group of British academics who met in 1953, sort of an emergency meeting to discuss the, quote, Mao Mau problem. And they decided at that meeting that clearly... The real reason the Mau Mau are rebelling was that they were captured by some kind of mental illness. It had nothing to do with the fact that their land had been taken away from them, no. It was that they were temporarily crazy, and the committee decided it must have something to do with those oaths. Oaths were
8: seen by the British as a primitive way of capturing a cuckoo mind and making the person unreasonable and insensible. The only way they argued you could get rid of the oath was to convert the person back to sanity. Part of that involved a confession of what they'd done. Once confessions were made, they would then be rewarded by a better prison regime. They'd be moved into another compound, given privileges, given better food. You moved along the system, they called it the pipeline. You moved along the pipeline until you were released.
4: But you first had to confess.
1: To, uh, to uh, confess. To confess. This is Gitu Wak Hungary. Freedom fighter. I joined the Mau Mau Freedom
4: Struggle when I was 17 years of age. He quickly became an organizer, a recruiter, and therefore a target. They had to
1: uh, search for me, and they caught me. They put me into a detention camp. They want us to say loudly that we forsake the Mau Mau struggle, but we refused. We refused.
4: In fact, one man told us a story of how in one of the barbed wire villages, every once in a while, the,
3: the mauma would come to the edge of the forest.
4: Just outside the village's fence, these were the fighters that hadn't been captured yet. They'd come right to the edge of the camp where a lot of the children would be playing.
3: And because no grown-up would suspect children would understand anything about what was happening in their country, mm-hmm. the people in the village used to use their children to take messages to the people in the fo- the fighters in the forests.
4: That's how they passed food and information to the fighters and in a way kept things going. The point is, according to David, that inside the camps you had... Massive resistance. And so in many cases, the British colonial soldiers would double down warning the following is pretty graphic. Um, There's a BBC documentary called White Terror that has tons of these frighteningly common stories of abuse from detainees.
1: He told me how naked, tied by his feet to the bars, he was brutally beaten on the testicles with a stick.
4: One of them is a man giving a tour of the prison cell he was kept in.
1: Then they seared his eyes with hot coals. They kept him there for eight days.
4: There's another story of these three men who were made to strip naked. One of the men was made to put his head into a bucket of water.
8: Then the white officer held one of the prisoner's legs aloft while a guard held the other.
3: Then another guard brought some sand, which they started to push into the detainees' anus with a stick.
2: They kept on
8: doing this, alternately putting in sand and water, all the while pushing the mixture in with the stick.
3: That act still
8: gives me nightmares to this day, because that was something that should never be done to a human
3: being.
4: In that period of coercive violence, it lasted throughout the 1950s.
8: Now, the the Mama were bad guys. Listen, there's n- nothing
6: to excuse this kind of terrorism. But
8: the Kenning campaign was a sledgehammer used to crack a knot. There have been a lot of
1: different estimates to try to pin down the scale of the British campaign. They range from 160,000 people killed, maimed, tortured, detained, to much, much higher numbers. Caroline Elkins did her own calculations And according to her... By the time it was done, nearly the entire Kikuyu population of a million and a
6: half people were detained, tortured, murdered, systematized force, labor. And you have to look at scale. And if you will, the balance sheet of this is how many Europeans died. 32.
1: 32. Huh. Like, why isn't this a tale that everybody in the world knows? In the event, say, of the enslavement of the Hebrew people under the pharaoh, they were slaves in Egypt, the pharaoh wouldn't let them out, Moses had to cross the river. It becomes the national story of the Hebrew people. In this situation, you have Jomo Kenyatta, who I believe is a Kakuyu, becoming the first president. Why wouldn't he make this the national story? Well,
6: Kenyatta comes out of detention, and one of the first things he does is he denounces Mau Mau as being hooligans, the same organization that accelerated independence
4: in Kenya. She says the same movement that scared the British scared him. He didn't want them suddenly organizing and taking his power.
6: So for decades, from 1948 until 2002, the ban on Mau Mau that had been put in place by the British colonial government remained in place.
4: Meaning it was illegal to even talk about it. But eventually, in 2005, Caroline publishes her book, Imperial Reckoning, which included the hundreds of interviews and painted a picture of just the systemic violence. The book was well-received, but she says a lot of critics told her, nice story, but no. No.
6: This is an act of fiction.
1: An act of fiction. I made it up. But you had all these interviews. Right.
6: But one of the lines of critique was that it's all based upon oral testimony. Oral testimonies are unusable. There is no story here.
4: She says a lot of that was just blatant racism.
6: You know, Africans make up stories.
4: But buried in there is sort of a legitimate concern. I mean, memory is faulty. We know that oral histories are notoriously unreliable. If you're going to rewrite an entire history, you need to get beyond personal anecdote. You need documents. that illustrate and prove it beyond doubt. And as we mentioned, besides those few that you found, the documents didn't seem to exist. Nonetheless, fast forward 2009. That book... Caroline's imperial reckoning became the basis of a very large lawsuit.
10: These Kenyan independent veterans have...
4: In June of 2009, five Mau Mau veterans, representing over 5,000 Mau Mau, flew to London.
10: The seat of an empire, they say, is responsible for torturing them.
4: And filed a lawsuit against the British government. The first time
6: the British government had ever been sued by a former colonized population.
10: The Mau Mau veterans want an apology
11: and some form of recompense for what happened.
2: Are you at all nervous going into the court?
7: (laughs) I think the word nervous is not the word I would have used. I told my partners to write off the case. I was not at all convinced that we're going to go anywhere but down.
4: That's Martin Day. He represented the Mau Mau veterans in court. And the reason he was so sure that the case was going to go down in flames was,
7: well, same issue. You just didn't have the documents. All he had were stories that weren't exactly rock solid. It was a nightmare. Old Kenyans in their late 70s and 80s, first of all, most Africans in my experience find dates extremely difficult, but people in their 70s and 80s, almost impossible. And this
4: was actually a huge problem, because in the British system, if you're going to bring forward an old case, like one that's more than
7: six years old,
4: the key question
7: to the judge is can you still get a fair trial?
4: And the government can plausibly argue no. Too much time has passed.
7: We were really worried that the judge would say, well, look, there can't be a fair trial because actually these witnesses are so old, so up and down just in terms of their memories, that really their evidence isn't worth a great deal.
4: So, to recap...
7: I wasn't really optimistic.
4: But then, it's kind of a last-ditch effort. He contacted historian David Anderson. To act as an expert witness. Because David had written a book about African history that was chocked full of legal documents.
8: And they approached me to ask whether there was material in the legal cases I dealt with that
4: might be useful to them. And that's when he told them something that would ultimately lead all of us back to that scary building of secrets. He told them for the past 20 years, he has had this hunch.
8: Well, so long before the Maumau trial came to court, I and a number of other historians believed that documents
4: had been brought back from Kenya to Britain. David says in that same Nairobi archive where Caroline Elkins had found the document about detention and thought, gosh, you know, what's going on? In that same place, somebody else had found another document that had also fallen through the cracks. And this one was a simple packing slip. Listing of documents for transportation and of their packing up and removal. Now, as for where those documents were moved to, well, no one knew. No. Maybe to an incinerator or bottom of the ocean. But from 1997, 98, 99, like a starving man with a single Pringle. David kept on. And I eventually
8: bought documents from the National Archives in Britain that confirmed...
4: The stuff from Kenya actually landed in an airport in Britain. On the eve of independence.
8: I then was able to find out who took them,
4: which van they went in. I even got the car's registration number. (laughs) But... That's when the trail went cold. They filed document request after document request. And we get nowhere. Then, something totally unexpected happens. Two
8: historians working on Southern Africa... Actually, got access to Hanslope Park.
4: They got inside. One of them was a former colonial administrator, so he could work some connections to get his way in. Anyhow, afterwards, he sends David Anderson a text message telling
8: me that in Hanslope Park he'd seen miles and miles of shelving of documents from other colonies, including Kenya.
1: Was that a figure of speech, Miles, or was that uh
8: I think he literal? meant it literally.
1: <laughs> really? He, he,
8: he'd, he'd seen a vast uh, hangar, as he described it, with row upon row upon row of documents.
4: So when Martin Day, the lawyer, contacted David Anderson and asked him, can you help us with it? our case, David said, here's what I can do. I can't actually give you any documents because I don't have any, but I can outline for you the documents that I think might be out there. The documents I believed the British government were hiding away. So he wrote a witness report
8: for the judge summarizing everything he knew. Giving all the details I had, I didn't mention Hanslope Park. I didn't say where I thought they were. I just said that I knew they'd come into Britain,
4: and I wanted to know what happened to them. The judge read that report and then basically asked the government, do you have them or not? Look, if
8: you can't answer this question, you'll be held in contempt of court. You'll be, I mean, in other words, I will interpret this as you withholding information. And that basically means you lose the case. That decision was the turning point. Half a century on from Britain's withdrawal from Kenya, documents detailing the alleged brutality employed by the British colonial authorities have finally been released. And suddenly, having spent years denying these documents existed, within four days they found them.
1: Kenyans were waiting in Nairobi today for the news from London. Well, you can see the reaction of these people here. They've won an important battle here today.
5: I mean, we're talking... We're talking something like 300 boxes of files, you know, tons of missing documents, 15,000 papers relevant to the case.
1: This again is Katie Engelhardt of Vice News. She reported on the trial and the extensive number of files that the government produced.
5: A hundred linear feet, I think, those, those files held. Um, and they contained really, really damning evidence. Evidence of Britain's conduct in Kenya. The
1: files made it clear that the central government in London did know what was happening in Kenya. There was specific documentation of rounding up of Mau Mau fighters. There was even a memo about a Kenyan being roasted alive.
5: And there was this pleading letter written by detainees that had been smuggled out of a camp and it said, hurry, hurry, hurry in order to save our souls. I mean, absolutely damning evidence.
1: The government ultimately agreed to pay about 20 million pounds to the people who brought this lawsuit, which works out to roughly $4,600 each.
5: Yes.
4: Here's what I don't understand. Why would they even save those documents? Well,
8: looking through the collections that have now emerged, it's quite clear to me that they wanted to save documents that showed that not only... All the European staff in Kenya had been happy about compulsive force.
5: There's a letter written in 1953 by the colony's attorney general. He observed that detention facilities in Kenya were, quote, distressingly reminiscent of conditions in Nazi Germany or communist Russia.
4: Oh, interesting. So you think the people, some of the British officers in Kenya, saved the files precisely because they were damning?
8: Yes, they saved stuff that would demonstrate
4: that we didn't like this. Hmm. Whatever the reason, here's why the Mao Mau case has become so much bigger than just the Mau Mau case. As soon as journalists and historians learned about the existence of those files, they started to relentlessly poke and request more documents. And soon, those 1,500?
5: Very soon that became 8,800 files, and then 20,000 files, and then 1.2 million files. Huh. And at the time, the estimate was that the files occupied about 15 miles of Florida ceiling shelving. What? Yeah, 15 miles.
8: The process that has been invoked by the Mamau case is going to have even wider repercussions than people yet realize.
4: We got a little...
10: Arrived in... in just in a little London. waft of that... Um,
4: When we were talking uh, with a woman named Mandy Banton.
10: A senior research fellow at London University.
4: She used to work at the National Archives in London. And we called her just to help us parse all this stuff. And at one point I asked her, is this just a Kenya thing? And she said,
10: oh, no, 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 it's it's not, it's not, by any means.
4: Then um, she explained that after the Mau Mau case, the Foreign Commonwealth Office, which is the technical name for the place that was holding those documents.
10: Almost immediately afterwards, it admitted that it actually had um, documents from 37 former colonies. Which had been Yes, exactly. You
7: mean that there
1: could be dirty stuff from Malaysia, dirty stuff from Palestine, dirty stuff
4: from Cyprus? I mean, you know,
10: they're obvious sort of trouble spots, if you like.
4: I mean, this is like a rewriting of history, essentially, is what.
10: Well, it is a rewriting of history. And I mean, there are now quite a lot of people um, looking at these, you know,
4: comparatively newly released records. Now, both David and Katie. uh, cautioned us that the new stuff when it comes out might not be quite as revelatory as all those Mau Mau files?
5: Well, I think there are nuggets. I think there are nuggets. And I think, I mean, I think historians will find them.
4: For David Anderson, one of those nuggets might be the documents about the Cold War. Those could be historically really very, very important. For Caroline Elkins. Israel and Palestine, then Malaya and Singapore
5: And I want to know what's in those Hong Kong files.
4: There's over 250,000 documents on Hong Kong, just Hong Kong, which sort of brings us to the situation that we are in now. Just the most ridiculous, ridiculous, stupid situation
8: imaginable.
4: Which is that for the moment,
8: the British government's policy is that all documents must be reviewed and redacted before release.
5: So each file needs to be looked over by what's called a senior sensitivity reviewer although colloquially it's just weeders. It's basically retired senior diplomats. So if you can imagine, you've got 15 miles of papers and you've got literally a couple of dozen retired diplomats.
8: And they sit in an office literally turning pages,
4: trying to stay awake. Sitting here, I just imagine, like, take a little sip of tea and redact all day long. Sip, redact, sip, redact.
5: And... At the rate that we're going...
4: By the time these files finally see the light of day...
5: It will not be within my lifetime. I mean, it could literally be hundreds of years. I
2: I keep thinking about these two groups of elderly folks. Again, producer Jamie York. The litigants in the Mama case are in their 80s and 90s. It just strikes yeah. me that <clears throat> what a crazy lucky break for them that in the very final years they're alive, they survived to hear this apology from the British government and acknowledgement of the story they'd been telling for 50 years.
8: Well, it, I, f- thank I you for putting others that others won't way. be so lucky. Yeah, Thank you for putting it that way, because I am um, having got to know the plaintiffs in the case when they came to London. It was very clear to me that um, what mattered to these people was not a financial settlement at all, but rather acknowledgement. Just simple acknowledgement that these things had been done to them. So, on the day that the barrister for the Crown stood up in court, and to all of our astonishment said quite simply, the British government admits the tortures, once I gathered my wits and looked round behind me in the courts, uh, two of the plaintiffs were in tears. And it, it brought home to me What a traumatic, appalling experience this had been for them, from start to finish. So yes, I agree, for them to get that triumph was remarkable. Remarkable.
1: Says our producer Jamie York, it was really remarkable only for some people. So when I went to Kenya and
2: I was talking to these people who had lived through the emergency, I I wanted to know about what they thought of the
3: settlement. And
2: a lot of them were like, what settlement?
3: They they, they had rumors about the government of Britain having agreeing to apologize.
2: Some of them had heard about it, some of them hadn't, but it, it doesn't really matter to them because the people who got paid, that's just a tiny sliver of the vast majority of people who suffered. What this one guy told me is that what he and most people, what they, what they want, need, isn't so much an acknowledgement. It's, it's to get back what was taken from them.
3: them pieces of land, Uh, a place where one can keep some goats or cows,
2: so that he can do what any 80, 90-year-old wants to do, leave something behind,
3: to give their children and grandchildren a better life.
1: Special thanks to Matatiah Schwartz for first bringing us this story, and to Martin Mavangina and to Faith Alube of the Kenyan
4: Human Rights Commission, Niak and Yuha Kenda for the use of their music, and Shruti Pinanameni for uh, production support. This story was produced by Matthew Keelty, original music from Matthew Keelty, and a hell of a lot of travel and reporting support from Jamie York.
9: Coming up next, we shift gears slightly. We're going to look at public records like newspapers and daily content. And we're going to consider the ways that that starts to become a historical record. And what happens when those types of archives start to be edited or even rewritten.
0: Hi, this is Tamara from Pasadena, California. Leadership support for Radiolab science programming is provided by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative, and the John Templeton Foundation. Foundational support for Radiolab was provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Radiolab is supported by Babbel. Sometimes self-improvement can feel like a pretty overwhelming journey. So what if this year you just got a tiny bit better? every day. When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app with quick 10-minute lessons that have been handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as 3 weeks. You can learn everything you need to have real-world conversations, café s'il vous plaît, from vocabulary words to culture and more. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just 3 weeks, imagine what you could do in a few months or a full year.
9: Hey, I'm Molly Webster, senior correspondent here at Radiolab. And so far today, we brought you a story about these dusty documents that have the power to rewrite the history of colonialism in Kenya, or maybe better said, to give us a more precise, accurate reading of that history. So in the previous segment, the documents were private government records hidden away in a highly secure government building. But that is not the only type of historical record there is. Some of our historical records are entirely public, you know, newspapers, flyers, advertisements. And we started wondering, like, what about public records like that? And so I want to play for you a bit of a conversation that I had uh, with this historian, Jane Kamensky. I was talking to her about... This movement that's happening in Europe and America in recent years where there are legal cases about redacting people's names or sometimes even events from public records like newspapers. It's something called the right to be forgotten. The idea being how long should your past haunt you? Right. So maybe maybe there comes a point in time where we delete someone's name so they can move on with their lives from this thing that they did at one point. So that's what you need to know to understand the conversation. And without further ado, I give you Jane Kamensky. I'm a professor of history at
11: Harvard and the faculty director of Radcliffe's Schlesinger Library on the history of women in America.
9: I am not a historian, so I'm just really curious as to how historians use news I guess, archives?
11: The archives of newspapers, large and small, far and near, have been a fundamental part of historical research from the days that people used to go to archives and sit and look at clippings files, mm. um, at physical clippings files. Many of the great collections of early British and early American newspapers come through one and another kind of hoarding um, because uh Paper was so valuable that people tended to use it up. You know, you read the news, you shared the news with your friends, you used it to line your basket and wrap, and then you used it to wrap your fish, and then it was done. Hmm. Um, So, you know, occasionally we got these caches of people who had filled an entire attic with newspapers. A huge breakthrough was made uh, in the middle of the 20th century with the invention of various um, micro-reproduction technologies, and then microfilm and then microfiche technologies. And then digitizers stepped in and mostly scanned those already micro-reproduced assets. They didn't go back to the original pages. So scholars have been using that newspaper record to search across tens hundreds thousands tens of thousands of titles it not only surfaces new answers but it surfaces new questions and i guess the thing that most concerns me about the deliberate unpublishing or disappearing of news that exists and was published and and was factual is that we don't know what the questions are that what either the questions or the methods will be that a scholar in the future will apply to that record. So um, I'll give you one example of a source that's been extraordinarily fruitful that I think nobody publishing it at the time or really storing it until 200 years later would have thought twice about, which are advertisements for enslaved runaways. These were incredibly uh, proliferant notices in early newspapers. A scholar at CUNY Graduate Center, David Waldstreicher, has done work to demonstrate, in fact, the the money made from runaway notices kept a lot of newspapers in business, you know, between
9: colonial times and the American Civil War. And so typically this would be like a white person thinking they owned a black person and then they ran away and saying like, bring this person back.
11: Bring this person back, this reward offered. Mm -hmm. And these advertisements are incredibly detailed and intimate because the person who's posting the ad wants the maximal chance of recovering their human property. And the way they're going to do that is by identifying them in detail. So they will often tell the reader things about uh, what their enslaved man or bondswoman or child looked like, what they sounded like, where they came from, um, the way that they may have affected a disguise, uh, you know, that they may have covered their scars and uh, dressed and is passing as a free man because they can read and write, um, we have learned naming patterns. Uh, You know, the person that I call Prince or, you know, these these names Prince or Cato, these sort of classicizing names that mocked the degradation of slavery, but is now calling himself free man. Mm. You know, so ironically, the way scholars have read these announcements especially in the last 15 or 20 years as they've been available on databases, is to recover the humanity of enslaved people. You know, here were these cosmopolitan people who acquired a tattered demalion of clothing and skills and had multiple languages and multiple potential contacts, especially in port cities, and followed the conduits of slavery into freedom in ways that we would not have known but for the ability to read those advertisements en masse i think we recover through them the incredible intimacy of slavery which i which a lot of our stories of the institution um lost until quite recently right that you know that there was a master class and a bound class and yet when you see um owners describing their property where you know they know every tooth and scar and um, intonation and look. Um, the down look is one of the things that often pops up in these ads. Um, and, and the lengths that people went to free themselves. Um, one of the most recent uh, sort of powerhouse books that has used this methodology was tracking the advertisement's that George Washington placed in pursuit of the people who ran away from his
9: plantation. Hmm. So like the idea here being that one, in that moment of that day, no one would have thought, oh, 200 years from now, I bet you scholars are going to be using this advertisement to piece together our relationship with each other. And then the other thing to think about is if that record... Ah, uh, somehow disappeared. Exactly. Or if a name in it disappeared,
11: and you you could imagine the people on, at whose behest the record was created. Um, I mean, I'm I'm just spinning a scenario yeah, here, go, but go for it. You know, uh, while you know slavery has vanished in my state, I don't want to be associated with this practice anymore. Now that our moral compass has shifted. Um, You know, this advertisement is carrying my name as an owner, uh, and I need it to be erased. Um, I, You know, so there's an instance where a lot of, um, you know, a lot of intimate records about slavery uh, were either not created or were destroyed, right? People can burn their letters, um, but the fact that there is a record in a newspaper um, that is stable— gives us a gives us a chance to see something that would otherwise have eluded us. I, I would say that a lot of the questions we have about, especially local newspapers now, a lot of the things that scholars are looking to local newspapers for now um, are places where we can find the voices of um, the marginal, the less accomplished, the less powerful um, the people who you know might be described in a Rotary organization um, or a high school sports team or um, something that is low to the ground, but who might not because of um, you know their their sort of privileged location or the lack of it, have gone on to do something where we can track them by their you know their well published novel.
9: Um yeah, I guess it's you're you're pointing at something which is you know like what what could you do like what could could you do, or I guess on the flip side would be what could you lose um if you deleted like you know Tom Smith from Seville, Ohio, like you know it seems so small if you lose his name, it just seems so insignificant at some level,
11: I guess um. You know, what, what you lose is the ability to ever have a robust answer to that question. If the story is disappeared, we can never ask a question. We can never ask a good question. We can never ask a bad question. We can just never ask a question at all. And I think ultimately, um, you know, ultimately, it's not the scholar at Harvard that loses. It's Seville, Ohio that loses by not making visible the fullness of we the
9: people. All right, that was Jane Kamensky, historian and scholar at Harvard University. Um, If you want to hear more about the idea of the right to be forgotten and redacting information from newspapers, you should head over to radiolab.org and listen to an entire hour we did on it uh, called The Right to Be Forgotten. And, And as always, even if you don't make it there, thank you for listening today.
2: Hey, this is Michael. I'm calling from Culver City, California. Radio Lab is produced by Jad Abumrad. Our staff includes Brenna Farrell, Ellen Horn, David Gable, Dylan Keefe, Matt Kilty, Andy Mills, Latif Nasser, Kelsey Paget, Ariane Wack, Molly Webster, Soren Wheeler, and Jamie York. With help from Damiano Marchetti, Molly Jacobson, and Alexandra Lee Young. Our fact-checkers are Eva Dasher and Michelle Harris.